Good morning again, church. Good to see everybody. A couple of you got here a little bit late. Special welcome to you. A for effort, right? Good job getting here this morning. If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. We hope you feel quickly at home here and as you're with us each week in worship that you feel a sense of belonging, an increasing sense of belonging as you're here each week. We'd love to give you a gift as our guest. It's a little book that uh, I've written that describes our aim as a church, what, what we're saying when we say we want to help one another follow Jesus. This book kind of spells it out. You can pick it up at the Welcome Booth, which is out in the Welcome Center. You can do that on your way out this morning. And if you had questions about who we are as a church, there's someone at the Welcome Booth to do their best to answer those questions. As I begin to preach, let me remind us, tomorrow is MLK Day, which is always the third Monday of January. MLK was born January 15th, 1929. He'd be 95 tomorrow. Our nation observes MLK Day to celebrate his leadership in the civil rights movement. The corrective that he provided uh, was a part of providing for our nation on issues of civil rights. In the summer of 2020, Sherry and I had the privilege, privilege of touring uh, the Civil Rights Trail. The Civil Rights Trail is a self-guided tour of uh, important civil rights sites in America. If you want a comprehensive list, you can just Google Civil Rights Trail and it will come up. This website, in fact, outlines all that you could possibly see and do along the way. And again, you pick your sites. We put together a driving tour that began in New Orleans and weaved its way north through Selma, Montgomery, Birmingham, and then in Virginia, Monticello, Jefferson's home, and then into D.C. Here's a picture of Sherry and I in front of MLK's statue on the mall there in D.C. The trip was a powerful experience for us as we learned more about the work of racial justice that is several hundred years old and ongoing in our nation. One of the most important and impactful sites for me was visiting Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where King served as pastor from 1954 to 1960. The church is located across the street from the state capitol in downtown Montgomery. You could throw a rock fairly easily from the church to the state capitol, maybe 100 yards, 50 yards. This is no small matter, it's significant. Uh, King's pastorate there, if you recall the role that Alabama's officials uh, played, not to mention its laws played, in maintaining segregation. I mentioned earlier in my welcome this morning the importance of offering both gospel doctrine and gospel culture within the church. And MLK's voice was and continues to be an important corrective on helping us uh, both offer gospel doctrine and gospel culture on issues of civil rights. In fact, I have an arresting picture for us here, a famous picture taken in an Alabama church. This church had gospel doctrine, but was struggling with gospel culture. Jesus saves. I'm having trouble picking up your feelings. This is an arresting picture, right? Jesus saves, but not everybody was welcomed in this church. They struggled with gospel culture, 
And it's true, granted, this picture represents a historic low point for gospel ministry in the southern portion of America. But my point is that correctives are needed. Correctives are needed in the church. And over the next few weeks, we hope to offer a corrective, as well as a call to a robust gospel culture. Specifically, we hope to offer a corrective to to the human, the natural human dependence upon ourselves for salvation. We want to offer a corrective there. And we hope to offer a call to an even greater relationship and dependence upon Christ for salvation. The name of the new series is Religion versus Jesus. We'll begin in Galatians 1. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture this morning as Paul offers a word of warning right off the bat in his beginning, Galatians 1, to this letter. The corrective he's offering, the word of warning, is not to stray from the gospel. Follow along as I read Galatians 1. I'm going to begin in verse 3, and I'm reading from the NIV. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Pretty standard introduction. We'll revisit it. Verse 6, I am astonished, stunned, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. Are we living in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all? Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Those are strong words. What is the gospel? How can we avoid confusion around the gospel? How can we gain gospel clarity, preserve gospel clarity, and avoid perversions of the gospel? Sherry and I have three children, the youngest, Rachel, is today 22 years old. Did I get that right? 22. But when she was just two years old, I'll never forget receiving a harrowing phone call from Sherry while I was at church, routine work day. I was sitting in my office when the phone rang, and Sherry was beside herself on the other end of the phone. I could hear crying in the background. It sounded like our youngest. It sounded like Rachel. Virtually every parent has probably received these phone calls where you know something bad is happening and you're waiting on the person on the other end of the line just to get themselves collected and get the news to you. How bad is it? What's going on? Just the wait. You've picked up the call. You hear the crying. I can tell Sherry's panicked. What's going on? It was torture just waiting. The news was that Rachel had locked herself into the bathroom. Eager to be a big girl, she went, two years old, went potty all by herself, closed the door. She'll be in second service, so I need to qualify all this. 
eager to be a big girl, she went potty all by herself, went into the bathroom, wanted to do this by herself, closed the door behind her, accidentally hit the button, managed somehow to push that button, lock the door, locking herself in. After doing her business, she was frustrated the knob wouldn't turn for her, so she started yelling for mom to come, help her, rescue her. When she realized that mom, on the other side of the door, couldn't do anything to get her out, that's when the screaming started. And I know what you're thinking, but this doorknob didn't have that little hole. <laughs> Either the doorknob was too old, or the people that we had bought the house from uh, didn't have preschoolers, toddlers, so they weren't concerned like we were in this matter. So there we were. I'm on one end of the phone, Sherry's on the other, and Rachel's screaming. Sherry's unable to open or force the door open. Rachel's unable to turn the knob herself. She's too immature and too panicked for a lesson on doorknob mechanics. Sherry's trying. She's trying to communicate, trying to calm her, trying to coach her to rescue herself. Rachel couldn't fully grasp the concepts and execute the procedures needed to free herself. She was in need of rescue. She was trapped. In a burst of brilliance, Sherry runs around the outside of the house, gets the ladder, while the two older kids inside the house are trying to calm Rachel. Sherry climbs up on the ladder, forces the bathroom window open, puts a hole in the screen, and tries to reach the doorknob herself and is unable to. And the window's too small for Sherry to get through the window. To make matters worse, in the surprising turn of events, Sherry coming through the bathroom window so panicked Rachel she wouldn't come to her own mother. <laughs> she, she backs away from Sherry into the corner of the bathroom, screaming even louder. What is going on that mom has to come through the window? The good news is that what Rachel was una unable to do for herself and what Sherry was unable to help Rachel do, a neighbor was able to do. A neighbor came and removed the pins holding the hinges on the outside of the door and then lifted the door off the frame, freeing Rachel, rescuing her. Rachel's predicament is a beautiful picture of what God offers to each of us through faith in Christ. At the beginning of the book of Galatians, we read grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Man, I would circle rescue. Do we see our need to be rescued? Rachel knew she needed help. She was screaming inside the bathroom asking for rescue. Do we recognize we're stuck in our sin? Unable. Unable to deliver ourselves from the present evil age in which we live, the evil circumstances, the sin that grows in our own hearts. Do, do we recognize we need someone outside the situation to enter in and provide for us? The good news is that God's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot coach our children to do. This is no small matter. Ballpark, 80% of us are raising school-aged school children. 
Sherry was unable to effect a rescue for Rachel. And the same is true for parents. Through faith in Jesus, we're rescued by God's grace from our sin, and we are set free. The door comes off the hinges, and we are set free. If we're not careful, though, the grace we have received can actually be undermined. Our freedom can be jeopardized. By what, by what is most often described as religion in our culture today. Dependence on Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, can be jeopardized, if we're not careful, undermined by religious observance. Galatia, the book is written to the Galatians. Galatia was a province in ancient region of Asia Minor. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was writing to a group of, of Christians who were spread out across several towns in this region. It's located in what is today the southwestern portion of the nation of Turkey. The lines on the map trace Paul's first missionary journey. There's Cyprus, the island there in the Mediterranean Sea. Due north is Galatia as a province. He had traveled there. Acts chapters 13 and 14 to record the travel. His stop there, the ministry that took place there is he's planting churches and preaching the gospel. He writes this letter at the beginning of his second missionary journey because he's heard things that concern him about what's going on in Galatia. He's concerned about some reports that he'd received. He had learned that some Jewish Christians, Jews that had received Christ as Savior, were teaching now a false gospel. They were perverting the good news. They were confusing the Galatians about how salvation happens, what's involved in salvation. He writes to correct this confusion. He writes to make sure they understand what's at stake. He, he writes with great urgency. He wants to make sure that the Galatians' freedoms, freedoms are maintained. Do you have a sense of freedom through faith in Christ? Lord, we pray for a deeper knowledge of gospel, um, goodness, and freedom this morning. I should note that 20 centuries later, this morning, we preach with the same urgency, believing that the same thing's at stake, that there's lots of gospel confusion, there's lots of gospel perversion, we need gospel clarity so that our freedoms aren't undermined. So what has Jesus done for us? How can it, our freedoms be undermined? Well, Paul writes in verse 4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. You see, it's not simply that faith in Jesus provides forgiveness of sins. While that's certainly true, the death of Christ and faith in the death of Christ does that, much more is at stake here. A life of freedom is at stake. The joy of the Lord is at stake. The enjoyment of God's presence is at stake. Faith in Jesus thus also provides for us freedom in the present age. This today, this present age, that he characterizes as evil. If you're a note taker, you might jot down faith in Jesus frees us to live differently today, now, in this age. We escape this evil age like Rachel escaped from the bathroom. 
because Christ came while we were yet sinners to die for us. Eternity, if you're trusting in Christ, started when you started trusting in Christ. We don't wait simply for a sweet by and by, uh, a heavenly experience. No, God's Spirit has been given to those who, are, who have faith, who are trusting in Christ. And our eternal life and the escape from this evil age begins now. And we don't want that experience undermined. We can be confident that we are unconditionally accepted before God through Christ. We know that nothing sinful we have done, are doing, or will do can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It's beautiful news. But faith in Jesus also provides us a freedom. It's a corrective. Jesus alone saves. And it's a call. It's a call to this lifestyle of freedom and peace and joy. Is everything in this age evil? Certainly not. There is a lot of beauty in the world by God's grace. But there's also a lot of evil. So much evil, in fact, that the best description of this age is an evil age, according to Paul. And Paul's concerns is the Galatians are being duped, which is undermining their freedom. What is it exactly that they might embrace that is so devastating, so confusing, so perverting to the gospel? What is the nature of the false teaching for the Galatians? It is basically the belief that we can, through deeds of righteousness, justify ourselves before God. We'll spend more time on this in the weeks to come. But this perversion of the gospel with which Paul is so concerned, goes something like this. It's the notion that if I behave a certain way, then God will accept me and or bless me. Why is this so evil, you might ask? Because it makes us equal with God. Think with me. It puts us in a bargaining position with God. It elevates our righteousness, lowers his holiness. It makes God our debtor. It makes him obligated. Rather than being humbled by our sinful situation, trapped in the bathroom, and dependent upon his rescue, religious behaviors can be aimed, if we're not carefully, at meriting the favor of God. And in arrogance, we attempt to bargain with him. If I do this, then you must or you will do this. You'll accept me. You'll bless me. You'll approve of me. In our flesh, our flesh, our egos, we love that call. We love the notion that God might be on the hook for something with us. And our flesh hates the notion that we are utterly dependent on his rescue. The this, if you do this, it could be potentially anything. It was something very specific in Galatia, but it could potentially be any behavior in the modern world. If I give this amount of money, 
then God, you'll do this. We may not state it explicitly, but it may bounce around in our soul and in our heart. If I get up and get to church in negative 11 degree temperature, we're in a season of prayer and fasting. If, if I pray and fast, then you will. We're tempted to stop certain behaviors believing that God will love us. We're tempted to start certain behaviors believing that God will bless us thus and such for those behaviors. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that we think that we're so confused about the gospel that we think 21 days of prayer and fasting will obligate God. Can you imagine if Rachel on the inside of the bathroom thought that she needed to motivate Sherry through some behavior to receive rescue? Sherry was fully motivated. The neighbor, when he came over, fully motivated, out of love. The neighbor really didn't even know Rachel. How much more is our Heavenly Father motivated? First song we sang to you, for God so loved the world that he gave. God doesn't rescue us if we behave. God rescues us, and it's very clear in today's passage, so that we can live in the grace of Christ. God doesn't rescue us if we behave. God rescues us so that we may live. It's on the screen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. You've been called to live in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel, which is actually no gospel at all, he says. It's not actually good news. That's what gospel means. All those who are entrusting in Christ as Savior have been called to live in the grace of Christ. Are, are you bargaining with God this morning? Are you coercing God? There's no grace in that. That's nothing but burden thinking that we have to control or manipulate or convince or connive God or impress God. That puts us in charge. That's a crushing burden. By God's grace, we'll see him in charge fully. Living in the grace of Christ means that experiencing the lavish love of God is not a one-time event. It's not that singular event when you came to faith in Christ. And not everybody can remember when they first started trusting in Christ. I can remember I was five. Uh, by God's grace, I can remember. But for some, it's much more gradual. But that aside, it's not a singular moment that we, re we experience his grace. It's an ongoing experience of grace. By God's goodness, his grace will be washing over you this morning. And you'll get a sense that you are unconditionally and lavishly loved. And then according to Romans 8, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. He loves you perfectly in Christ. Perfectly. Not a one-time experience, but an ongoing experience. It is literally how we are to live moment to moment in God's grace. 
we are to have moment to moment this, this wave of his goodness coming over us it, that results in a thankfulness and in a peace and a joy. Not that life is always easy, but that his grace is available because of what Christ has done. Faith in Jesus enables us to live differently today, and the lifestyle is best described as a grace-based life. When people run into you, when, when they cross your path, is that what they come away with? A whiff of grace. And I confess, it's not always what people come away with when they meet me, when they experience me. But by God's goodness, I would love for that to be the experience. I'll be very honest with you, at 55, I spend some time, a fair bit of time, thinking about how I want to finish life. I'm not doom and gloom, but I tell my children, I'm deciding today who I want to be at 60 and 65. You read the narrative of Scripture, there are a whole bunch of folks that don't finish well late in life. They get entangled in sin and they finish poorly. A grace-based life mitigates against sinful entanglement. The more I can see that I'm in need of his rescue, and I can be honest about my sin, the daily sins that I struggle with, then I can experience that rescue in a greater probability that I'll finish well. Faith in Jesus enables us to live differently today. Just like Rachel was rescued to enjoy, to go on with her day, God our Father has rescued us. What might it mean to live in the grace of Christ? It means to daily enjoy his unmerited favor. Not so that, but because of his love. It means doing things like talking to God. Not so that he'll love me, but because I'm convinced. I'm so thoroughly, I'm, I should say, I'm increasingly convinced of his lavish love. And it, it provokes in me a response, a dialogue response, where I want to talk to God. It means singing of God's lavish love. It means confessing our sin to others and praying. I spoke earlier in the service. I started out the service with a welcome. I just talked about welcome can be a throwaway experience and word in church culture. But, but what we're saying is when we're welcoming each other in the name of Christ, Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as you've been welcomed by Christ. You've been welcomed as sinners. And so when we welcome each other, we're saying, hey, I see that this is a collection of sinners. Glad you're here. Come in and experience the grace of Christ. Well, that necessitates a confessing culture. To whom do we confess? When do we hear from each other that the grace of God covers your confession? James 5 tells us to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other's healing. That's a welcoming culture. When we take off the masks and live in the grace that's offered us. Folks, the only reason you need grace, we need grace, I need grace. The only reason we need grace is because we're sinners. We're trapped in our sin. 
celebrating God's assurance of forgiveness, obeying his commands, not so that he'll love me, but because I'm increasingly convinced he loves me and that he has the best in mind for me, giving generously without fear of want, welcoming others, I've already mentioned that, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens. Are we enjoying the blessings of freedom that God longs for us to know? Where, where we move from duty to delight. And I, I want to say that anybody get, gets up and gets to church in negative 11 degree temperatures, y'all are moving from duty to delight. You're here because you want to be here. No one's here by accident, right? There's a delight. You want to hear and experience the grace of Christ. The grace offered through Jesus is the only gospel. There's no other gospel. There's no good news that blends my hard work and Jesus' death. That is not the gospel. The gospel is all Jesus, only Jesus, always Jesus. That's what the gospel is. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. We don't contribute to our salvation. We respond to the rescue of God. We respond to the rescue of God. And if you've never responded to the rescue of God, do it this morning. You can do it right where you're seated. You say, I just talk to God like you talk to your best friend. Right where you see, if you feel a desire welling up within you to be rescued, that's the spirit working in you, you can just say to God, I want to be rescued through faith in Jesus. And begin, you'll begin living by grace. You'll begin living in ways, not because you want to merit or earn, but because you've experienced, you've tasted, and you've seen that God is good. That's a grace-based life. We're going to close in song. I'd encourage you to come forward for prayer. Jim and Ann Hess will be down front. Come forward for prayer if welcoming others in the name of Christ is hard for you. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you're having trouble welcoming. Maybe you want to come forward for prayer if knowing the welcome of Christ is hard. Even believing that, that this community wants to really welcome sinners. Maybe there's an emotional barrier there. Most of us have some church baggage where we've, we've met with religiosity. We've been told that we have to behave a certain way in order to be loved rather than seeing we've been loved perfectly in Christ. You come forward for prayer. If you feel like your freedom has been undermined, if you want to know more of the grace of Christ, maybe you feel like there's a, a roadblock to, to knowing grace in your life. Sometimes families of origin have messages around faith that are performance-based messages. Clear this bar, and then from there on, it's all free, it's all free, free salvation. Or it's free salvation, but then you have to run really hard to maintain it. Maybe you have some family of origin that contributes to you not knowing the lavish love of God and being at ease. Maybe you have a sin that's burdening you. Jim and Ann would be willing to hear that and pray for you and, and minister the gospel to you. Let's stand. Let me pray for us as we, as we begin to sing. Father, we thank you for your lavish love. We pray that the gospel would be 
clarified in our hearts and minds. In the days ahead, we would know your freedom. Freedom to act not out of duty, but out of delight. Not out of fear, but out of faith. Thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.